Morning. Hey, open up your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. We're at the latter part of chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And as you're turning there, uh, I have relative confidence that only about five of you know that uh, the USA women's soccer team are playing Brazil and they probably just finished. Does anybody know that? Oh, more than five of you. Excellent. Now, I also have extreme confidence that not one of you is going to come up to me after today's service and tell me the score of that game. I have great confidence in all of you that you will refrain from checking your phones and from telling me the score, which is being recorded at home. Can I count on that confidence? No, Scott says. Scott, you're going to be in deep trouble. I have confidence. I have confidence. And you know who else has confidence? Daniel has confidence. Today in the book of Daniel, we are going to read about Daniel's confidence. It's not confidence in a soccer game. It's confidence in the revelation of God. The title of today's message is Unabashed Confidence in God's Revelation. Unabashed Confidence in God's Revelation. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel 1, beginning in verse 17. We're going to have a lot of text to cover today in our study in Daniel, but we're going to run through it rather rapidly. When you, when you have an opportunity to, to teach the narrative sections of Scripture like this one, you can move through it rather quickly, but nevertheless, sometimes you have larger chunks to read at a time. So that's what we're going to do today. Beginning in Daniel 1, starting in verse 17, let's learn about some of Daniel's coming confidence in God's revelation. It says this, As for these four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. And among them all, uh, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. Verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Then Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Where are we? Well, we're, we're in the book of Daniel. We're going through this book. We're uh, uh, just getting started. This is our third message in the book of Daniel. And the time period that we're looking at is about 605 B.C. In fact, by the time we're reading here, it's probably about 602 B.C. In 605 B.C., Israel was ransacked by Babylon, and the Jews were taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. And among those Jews, the Babylonians had selected some of the wisest men, the noblest men of Israel, to be trained and to be educated in the ways of the Babylonians, and to also advise the king on other matters of culture and religion. And Daniel was among those men. And so we see here, in verse 17 and following, we see here a culmination, if you will, of Daniel's training in preparation to serve his new king, 
King Nebuchadnezzar. And we see Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, four Jews, all of them, the Bible says, skilled in literature and wisdom. And then Daniel is set apart as one who is skilled in understanding visions and dreams. That's a rarity. You don't see that very often in Scripture. In fact, the only person prior to Daniel that you see that with is a man by the name of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Now, what about this end of days in verse 18? Now, at the end of the days, well, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, it indicates that the king trained them uh, for three years. Uh, Let's see. In chapter 1, verse 5, it says that they received three years of training, that at the end of that time they might serve the king. So the end of days was probably the three years of training, much like we go uh, three or four years of high school or college. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar, essentially he interviewed them, almost like uh, an oral exam, right? At the end of uh, your time of study, oftentimes you're given an oral exam. I know uh, Tom is busy with a dissertation, and at the end of that dissertation, he's going to sit down in front of some of his professors and just be grilled over and over again about his dissertation, about the nature of it, about how he's going to defend it, how he's going to explain certain things, the strengths, the weaknesses of it. You ready, Tom? No. <laughs> That's about a year from now, so we got time yet. Oral exams, they're not fun, right? I remember in college having oral exams, and I just, you couldn't stand them. One, one professor, he would, he would just, you know, roll down the questions, and he did the final exam as an oral exam. And he had a list of questions. He had to study for about 60 questions, and he'd only ask you two because there were 30 students in the class. So every student got two questions. But as he's going down the questions, you don't know what question you're going to be asked. And it was, it was frightening. It was trembling. But these four Jewish men, they passed the test. So much so did they pass the test that it says they were ten times better than the Babylonian men, than the magicians, than the astrologers. The word magician there means spiritualist or diviner. They, along with the astrologers of Babylon, used uh, astrological charts to discern the future, to attempt to make decisions. The astrologers were also known as enchanters or men of words. They uttered spells. You see a heavy emphasis on pagan spirituality in the Babylonian Empire. In truth, we might think of these men of old as, we might think of these men whom Nebuchadnezzar are interviewing serving the function that is reminiscent of our modern day presidential cabinet. Today, a president's cabinet are a variety of specialists in various fields of government affairs, maybe military, health, transportation, economic advisors. I think we have those, right? I think we do. Um, in any event, these, the magicians, literally, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the wise men, they were Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet. They were his advisors. And after interviews, it was Daniel and his friend that were found to be the most superior of the cabinet members. And in fact, the next four chapters, chapter 2, uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All the next chapters are essentially, I should say two through six, are essentially a demonstration of Daniel's superiority, of Daniel and the men's superiority to the Babylonian wise men. 
Of course, we know the substance behind their greatness, and it is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the mind. I mean, think about that for a minute. God, He, he created us in His image. He, he, he designed us precisely the way He wanted us to be. And it's His Spirit that illumines our minds. And so it would make sense that a human being created in God's image, if they are to excel in the way that God created them to excel, it makes sense that they would be a person who is filled with the Spirit of God. If they're not filled with the Spirit of God, then they are living a life that is antithetical to what they were created to be. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Daniel and his men were found to be superior. The Holy Spirit's job is to point people to God. And God is truth. And so when we find Christians in society who are rising up in, in, in high places, we shouldn't be surprised. I, I think of some of the, the best minds that I know of in the Christian community today. Men like Alvin Plantinga of Notre Dame, a, a great Christian philosopher. Men like Dallas Willard of University of Southern California, a Christian philosopher at USC. Men like William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland. These are men, you put them up against any, any secular philosopher, any secular scientist. And I see these men putting them to shame. And it shouldn't surprise me. Because their arguments are superior. Why? Because they're filled with the Spirit of God. Period. Use your mind. Because God has designed you to use your mind in a way that that blesses Him, that benefits Him. J.P. Moreland wrote a book, one of my favorites, one of my all-time favorite books by J.P. Moreland. It was written in the mid-90s, late-90s. The title of it is, Love the Lord Your God with All Your Mind. Pick it up. I think you would enjoy that read. Let's continue to read about Daniel and, and, the, and the men and what happens. Notice verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. "O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Now, before we get to the dream, just a quick side note. In verse 4, it is said that the Chaldean wise men spoke, quote, spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, what's notable about this part of the book of Daniel is that the written language in the, in the ancient uh, original text of Daniel, the actual written language actually switches from Hebrew to Aramaic at this point. Right in verse 4, right in the middle of verse 4, as a matter of fact, as the Chaldeans respond to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel actually shifts from writing in Hebrew to writing in Aramaic. And he continues this shift to the end of chapter 7 when Daniel reverts back to Hebrew. Now, we might be wondering, well, why does Daniel do this? Uh, Gleason Archer, a great Old Testament scholar, has this to say. He says the Aramaic chapters, chapter, essentially chapters 2 through 7, deal with matters pertaining to the entire citizenry of the Babylonian and the Persian empires. Whereas the other six chapters, chapter 1 and 8 through 12, 
relate to peculiarly Jewish concerns and God's special plans for the future of his covenant people. It would seem to follow that the Aramaic chapters were in some sense made available to the Gentile public, since Aramaic was the lingua franca of the Babylonian and Persian empires during the 6th and 5th centuries B.C. The lingua franca, meaning among the many cultures that, and among the many languages that were a part of that period of time, it was considered the most commonly accepted communication language. I think Archer's point is, is well taken. We, we have here portions of the book that are written in Hebrew. Why? Because they concern the Jewish people. They were meant for the Jews to read and to be encouraged by, ultimately. And then we have portions of it in Aramaic. Why? Well, the Jews could read Aramaic for sure. And, and, but also the Babylonians could read Aramaic. And later on, the Persians could read Aramaic. And beyond them, even other cultures could read it. And so Daniel here is being very intentional about his book. He wants others to understand components of it. And so he perhaps uses this dual language uh, in his book to, uh, to reach out to others of, of different cultures. Now, I can only speculate, and scholars can only speculate, but it is likely that Daniel's Aramaic, his switch to Aramaic in chapter 2, verse 4, to continuing to, verse, to chapter 7, uh, were also at least partly instrumental in influencing King Cyrus to let the Jews return to Jerusalem. You see, here we are in 602 B.C., right? Fast forward to 539 B.C. Babylon is being conquered by Persia. And Persia becomes a new world empire. So the Babylonians had conquered the Jews, okay? And now Persia had conquered Babylon. So Persia were now the, the, the victors over both Babylon and the Jews. And yet the first Persian king, King Cyrus, lets the Jews go back to Jerusalem. Now why would he do that? Take a look at Ezra 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the, mouth, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord, of God, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea, Judah. Take note of Cyrus's language. What does he say? He says, the Lord God of heaven has given me. Do you know that one of the first instances of the Lord God of heaven, the, one of the first instances of that being used in the Old Testament is found in the book of Daniel? You don't see that phrase earlier. It's extremely rare. It's only in the book of Daniel where that phrase begins, confirming the authenticity of that book, of that time period, when that phrase began to arise. And Cyrus, being a Persian, he didn't know Hebrew. He couldn't read Hebrew. So had Daniel written all of Daniel in Hebrew, Cyrus would not have had access to it. He would have had to have an interpreter, a translator, if you will. But had portions of it been written in Aramaic, which it was, then Cyrus would have access to that book. And as he conquered Babylon, he took the cabinet of Babylon, which still included Daniel, and he brought them in and said, tell me about your culture. Tell me about your religion. Show me what you think is true. Show me what you think is right. And Daniel said, well, here, sir, I, I have this book. I have my book. And portions of it you can read yourself. 
And you can read about fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy. Because by the time Cyrus had read the book of Daniel, much of it had already come true. And then Daniel later was able to interpret portions of Isaiah for Cyrus. And these are the things that in all likelihood, contributed to Cyrus letting the Jews go back. Why else would a pagan king let a conquered people group go back to their nation, to their land? Why else would he do that if he had not been influenced by fulfilled prophecy, by a holy scripture that he could read himself and compare with history and see the hand of God in all of it? And then he reads about this God of heaven and he says, my goodness, This God of heaven has even named me by name in the book of Isaiah. Cyrus was stirred up by the Lord God of heaven to send the Jews back. Just kind of a side note, something to think about as we consider, again, the the veracity of Daniel and the reasons behind why Cyrus would do such a thing. Now to the dream, though. What about this dream? Nebuchadnezzar has a, a haunting dream. So evocative was this dream that he could not sleep. And the Chaldeans, they look at him and they say, King, tell us the dream and we will give you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar thinks about it and says, hmm, let's take a look at what he says in verse 5. Then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, If you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give its interpretation. Hey, who wants to sign up for Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet? (laughs) Men, men, I've had a dream and I'd like you to tell me its interpretation. Oh, yes, king. Yes. We are prepared to give the interpretation. Please, give to us the contents of the dream. Hmm. No. I'll tell you what. I've got a better idea. Either you tell me the contents of the dream, or I kill you. Not a real good deal. Of course... It was a preposterous demand of the king. But who could argue with him? He's the king. In truth, passages like this in Daniel give us a glimpse of just how much Nebuchadnezzar was probably wrestling with the pagan spirituality of his day. I think he doubted it. And I think that that's obvious. He doubted their powers. In his mind, if these pagan sorcerers really had divine power, then surely they had the power to not only interpret a dream, but also to ascertain the contents of a dream. Here we find a man, even in his unregenerate state, trying to sort between truth and falsehood, between that which is genuine and that which is a forgery. And in his heart of hearts, he knew that the religion of his people was flawed. 
I, th- I, thought, I read an article the other day. A woman um, brought up in the Mormon church. And uh, she said, I, she was admitting in this article that I always knew it was wrong. Even at nine years of age, she recounts a story where her, her mother is combing her hair and her mother asks her, she says, Patty, you don't believe in our religion, do you? And, and the little girl at nine years of age turned to her mom and says, no, I don't. At nine years, she knew in her heart of hearts that it was a forgery. That it had, had a semblance of the truth, but in the end was empty. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is feeling. He's looking at these men, and he himself is not a believer. Not a believer in the Lord God of Israel. And yet he's looking at them and he's saying, something's not right here. I can tell there's something fake here. And they answered and they say, King, just tell us the dream and and we'll give its interpretation. But the king knew they were just buying time. I know for certain that you would gain time, he responds. Verse 9, if you do not make... Knowing the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have all agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me the interpretation. But of course they couldn't. They didn't have such power. Because the gods they served were a sham. And faced with execution, they began to beg. Look at verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Here we see the pagans, they're pleading to Nebuchadnezzar, please, please, king, this cannot be done. Your request goes too far. But their answer fell on deaf ears to a skeptic king. And right then and there, he orders the death of all the wise men in Babylon. Think about that for a moment. These are men of his own people and men of other cultures whom he has invested training and resources, and fed for three years. And in an instant, he orders all of them dead. A rash decision, of course, but it was indicative of just how frustrated the king was at the emptiness of his spiritual advisors. He was reacting to years of being led astray by their so-called wisdom. For years he had sought them out to advise him, to counsel him, and in the end, Their feeding trough of wisdom was empty. And it it really, really for us, I mean, the lesson for us is, does it not beg the question, from which types of people do we seek counsel? Right? From which types of people do we seek counsel? When you go for marital counseling, when you go for financial counseling, emotional counseling, psychotherapy, addiction counseling, whatever it is, to whom do you go to? There are many people who need counseling. Many people need wisdom, need perspective, need help. To whom do you go to? If all you do is seek the counsel of people who deny God, 
How valuable is that counsel? Can an unregenerate person give good counsel? Of course they can. Absolutely. Let me make that very clear. A a non-believer can give good counsel. They are created in God's image. They have talents and skills just like any other. But does it not make greater sense to seek out a similarly wise and skilled person who also happens to have the Spirit of God in them? Of course it does. And may I suggest that there, that there is not one arena, not one, there is not one arena in all of human life, in all of matters of counseling, there's not one arena in which you and I cannot find it cannot take someone who is unregenerate and very skilled in therapy or counseling of some kind and find a comparable person who also happens to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. There's not one area where that isn't true in our nation. That may not be the case in, in, in some others. But in this nation, you will always be able to find someone indwelt by the Holy Spirit who has just as much talent and education as one who is a secularist, perhaps an atheist. Far too often, especially in the field of psychotherapy, Christians seek out non-believing counselors. And on occasion, those counselors can give advice that is antithetical to the Spirit of Christ. I've heard it. I've heard stories of, of women who go to a counselor, and, and a non-Christian counselor, and, and, and share what's happening in their marriage, and the counselor looks at them and says, get a divorce. What do you do with that? Are you going to seek out a Christian counselor to respond to that that counsel? Or are you just going to pay attention to whatever this unregenerate person says who isn't looking at the Word of God at all, isn't even acknowledging God, doesn't even care to consider Scripture in, in, in giving their advice? Let me, let me be clear again. Can, a can an unregenerate person give good advice? Yes. Absolutely. Happens all the time. But is it better to find an equally educated and skilled Christian counselor? You bet it is. You bet it is. Far preferable, in my opinion. Nebuchadnezzar's advisors, he found them to be empty. And they were the best of the best in Babylon. He found them to be empty. And so he, in back, going back to our story, the king orders the execution of every single one of them, including Daniel. Look at verse 14. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, it's quite clear that Arioch and Daniel must have at least had some semblance of a relationship because Arioch's orders are to kill Daniel. And instead, he first engages Daniel in conversation. In fact, it's probably safe to say that Arioch had a measure of trust in Daniel. For what law enforcement official, given orders to kill a man, instead brings him alive and well before the king? The truth is that Arioch probably also despised the king's order. He knew it was wrong. And so he risked his own life to bring Daniel before the king. I I think that's evident in the text. Arioch has no business bringing this man he's supposed to kill before the king's presence unless Arioch himself 
had questions about that order. No business. But he questioned it. I think of uh, in Syria today, I'm reading stories of, uh, uh, and I hope you are too, of, of soldiers that are uh, defecting from the Syrian army because King Assad uh, is ordering these soldiers to fire on innocent civilians. I mean, Syria is a mess right now. We hear about Afghanistan. We hear about Iraq. We hear a little bit about Libya. I would venture to say that all three of those don't compare to Syria. What's happening in Syria today is incredibly serious. And there's incredible atrocities and violence taking place. And I was, I was watching on, on CNN, which uh, I, I have to give them props. They're the only network I've seen who has even covered this. Um, CNN was doing an expose of Syrian soldiers who are defecting from the army and who are, are basically standing up and, and videotaping themselves. Some of them are covering their face, but others are just showing their face plainly and saying, I will not obey that order. And so I've given up um, my, my service to this nation. Standing up for truth. A man by the name of Vince Cephalou. Uh, you may know that name. Uh, you're going to hear more about that name. I promise you that. Vince Cephalou is going to be a name that every, every American knows in less than a year. Vincephalou was the ATF agent, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agent who blew the whistle on uh, this, this gun program in, uh, in our government. We, we had a program that sent guns into Mexico, and we were supposed to track those guns, and it all fell apart. And what, turned out, what, what ended up happening is one of those guns, not many of those guns have now killed hundreds, if not thousands, of Mexican citizens. Guns that our government sent over the border. And one of those guns actually shot one of our own U.S. agents months ago. And Vince Cephalou was the first man at the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms um, uh, Department of the U.S. government to blow the whistle and to go public and to say, this happened. And the public needs to hear about it. And this is wrong, and I need to say it. Vince Cephalou was served termination papers termination papers a few weeks after blowing the whistle. He stood up for the truth. He stood up for what's right. And he paid a price for it. Arioch and Daniel are standing up for what's right. And they're going before the king. And the king's looking at them. And it could be death with one flicker of Nebuchadnezzar's eye. Or it could be, I'll give you more time. And look what happens. The king honors Daniel's request as opposed to refusing the pagans' request for more time. And we may never know why, but the king had confidence in Daniel and in Arioch, who had both earned the king's trust. A reminder to all of us how much it is good to earn the trust of our governing officials, even though we may not agree with them, to entrust ourselves to them goes a long way. And it did here for Daniel. Now notice verse 17. So Daniel gets more time. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven. There's that phrase, God of heaven. Cyrus read that. That they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, 
Blessed, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is uh, what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. What do we do when faced with tremendous obstacles, tremendous hardships? We pray. We pray. Scripture says that Daniel and his friends sought the mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. They went to their knees in prayer. You know, as you, as you get older, uh, the hardships of life, they increase, right? Uh, you, when you're young and, and, and single and in school, you, you have barely a care in the world. And then you get married. And then you've got to get a, a, a nice job. And then you have kids. And then you've got to get maybe a better job. And then you've got to buy a bigger car. And then you got to pay for some education. And then your daughter wants to get married, so you got to pay for that. Or in James's case, you got to pay for four of those. And then, uh, and then what happens? Let's see, the kids, they get married, and then they start having kids. So now you're a grandparent, and now you got to spoil some grandkids. And now you're about to retire, but oh wait, the kids need some help with the money. And uh, at least Social Security will always be there, right? Hardships, they grow. It gets harder. I think it gets harder. I think that's pretty fair to say. And the question is, as the obstacles grow, does your prayer life grow with it? Because you can do it alone or you can do it with the Lord. But you can't do it both ways. With each year that passes, I find myself learning to pray more. Paul says pray without ceasing. And in other words, you know, let prayer, let, let, let the method of prayer, the mode of prayer, Be continually on your tongue. Pray as you drive. Pray as you walk. Pray as you work. When you read an email with a prayer request on it, pray for it right then. I'm disciplining myself to do that. When I get a correspondence or a text or an email and it says pray for so-and-so, I stop right then and there as much and as often as I can remember. I just focus right then and there for a few moments and say, God, and I entreat whatever request that is. When, when you're writing to someone and saying, I'm praying for you, why not instead write out the very prayer that you're praying? Let them hear your prayer. Daniel prayed and God answered. We see in verse 19, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. In response to Daniel's prayers, God revealed the dream to Daniel. And in proper time, and in, 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 I should say in proper response to God, Daniel took time to praise God for what he had done. And in like fashion, when God answers our prayers, be sure to thank Him for it. You know, what what piqued my interest most about this section of of the story, and you can kind of miss it as as you're going through the story, but what caught my attention more than anything was just how confident Daniel was that he knew the dream now. Think about that for a moment. Here Daniel is, he's he's praying to God, and all of a sudden, he, in his heart of hearts, receives revelation. Right? 
he receives an infusion, if you will, of knowledge. Uh, gift of knowledge. Boom. Immediately he knows in his heart of hearts the content of the dream. He knows what the dream was. And we're going to read later on. He knows what the interpretation is. Just like that. And yet, Daniel, at this point in time, hadn't gone before the king. He hadn't gone to Nebuchadnezzar yet. In other words, he was rejoicing and just extolling God's praise. And he didn't even know if what he had received was accurate. Ah, but he did. He did know it was accurate. Because when God reveals Himself to mankind, it is clear and it is definite and it is unmistakable. Daniel didn't have to go before Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he knew what he had received. He didn't have to go before Nebuchadnezzar before he got confidence in what he had heard from God. He knew it right then and right there. He didn't have to verify it outside of his revelation from God, Daniel was utterly convinced that what he had received was from God, even though it had not even been spoken to the king. And the lesson from this, I think, is very clear. It is take confidence in God's revelation. Take confidence in it. The... um, the tendency, now I'll put this up on the screen here, the tendency among many Christians today is to be apologizing for the Bible, to be apologizing for their faith, to be apologizing for Jesus. I see this all the time. I see this everywhere in Christianity today. People are apologizing for the creation story. And they're trying to, well, let's, let's restate that a bit, that it might correspond to, to theories of atheistic evolution. Let's kind of nuance that Genesis account a little bit. Because we need to apologize for it. They apologize for portions of biblical prophecy. Well, let's let's try to rationalize that a little bit. That's a little too detailed to be accurate. So let's just call it um, a scribal addendum. Let's say that that wasn't exactly in the ancient text. That later people kind of added that. And that'll that'll kind of massage it and make it look a little better. They apologize for hell, as evidenced by one prominent Christian pastor's recent book, Love Wins. Not a good book. They apologize for miracles. I saw one documentary that tried to explain the parting of the Red Sea in terms of a combination of low tide and high wind patterns. Low tide, high winds. Crossing of the Red Sea. Boom. Easy, right? Are you apologizing for the Bible? Are you apologizing for your faith? What's next? Are we going to apologize for the resurrection? Well, well, that's, that's a little crazy. So uh, let's see. Uh, how can we explain that better so that our atheist, secularist, scientific friends will like us more? Really? I'm, I'm tired of apologizing. Either the Scriptures are the revelation of God or they are not. Half-truth doesn't cut it. If this, if this book is just partly true, then we're wasting our time. 
Daniel heard from God. And when he did, he was filled with confidence. So much confidence, in fact, that it didn't even occur to him that he had to verify it with a pagan king. He didn't need to. He already knew it was true. Let us also, in the spirit of Daniel, not be obsessed with trying to rationalize God's revelation. That it might somehow be in harmony with the tenets of pagan philosophy or atheistic scientism. And, and I might ask the question, what would that really gain anyway? Except to reduce the supernatural power of God down to common things, down to finite things, down to natural causes. The Lord is God. He has spoken. This is His Word. It is prophetic. It is powerful. It is accurate. It is true. And as such, we can have the utmost confidence in what it says. Amen? Let's finish uh, 24 to 30. Here we go. Therefore, Daniel, he went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and thus said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and thus said to him, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Upon receiving the dream from God, revelation, Daniel was prompted to go before the king. And he tells Arioch, take me before the king. And he knows what he says. And don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Daniel loved his enemies. In the Spirit of Christ, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Daniel said, let there not be violent killing. Take me before the king. And the king answered and said, do you know how to interpret this dream? Do you know what my dream was? Verse 27 to the end. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians and the soothsayers, they can't declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And He has made known to Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And He who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who makes known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Daniel begins his address by confirming what the king had already suspected. The pagan spiritualists of Babylon did not have the power to ascertain the contents of the dream. But there is one who does. And notice Daniel doesn't say it's him, though he certainly could have. He gives credit where credit is due. He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. He didn't extol his own wisdom. Instead, he humbled himself in front of God. He said, verse 30, as for me, the secret's not been revealed because I'm more wise than anyone. We can only imagine just how on edge Nebuchadnezzar and his court were at this point in time. The lives of hundreds of spiritualists were at stake. And here was a young Jewish man standing before the king, extolling the praise of a God that Babylon did not know. What Daniel would say next would save the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, 
but it would also begin a small change in the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. And perhaps most notably, Daniel's words would prophetically reveal the future of mankind and of empires and kingdoms of this world. And next week, we will get into the interpretation of that dream. But for today, let us remember that God wants us to have unashamed confidence in His revelation. I close with Gleason Archer who writes this. He says, The pagan wise men had confessed that only deity could comply with the king's request. Nebuchadnezzar and all Babylon were therefore to be confronted with unanswerable proof that only Israel's God was real, sovereign, and limitless in His power. Do you have confidence in God's revelation? Do you have confidence in His Word? Or do you make apologies for it all the time? Let's have confidence in God and in what He says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for this day, for this wonderful story. Lord, I'm blessed to be going through this book. It is so encouraging and uplifting. So many lessons to be learned from this book. God, we pray that today, if we've ever lost confidence in Your Word, if we've ever lost confidence in Your revelation, Lord, let that day end today. We want to have confidence in You, God. And we know that when You speak, we can take it to the bank. And God, You have spoken in Your Word. You've spoken about eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. You've spoken about how to live, how to pray, how to go about life on this earth in anticipation of the life to come. Let us have confidence, Father, in what You say. And let us arrange and orientate our lives around it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.